0: Breaker. Written by Rob Aspinall. Narrated by Alastair Austin. 19. I'm zipping along easy down the parkway road, going past traffic and hitting the motorway. The BMW is fast and I see the airport signs already. This isn't my first emergency holiday probably not my last, and I've got a couple of mates to the airport I slip a few quid to. There are ways to get in and out and bypass customs, ways to get on a chartered plane rather than one of the regular airlines, strictly trade secrets. I turn up the radio, Neil Diamond, forever in blue jeans, well wouldn't you know it, must be a good omen, a sing-along, might be the lack of sleep, but I feel happy as Larry. Nice car too, it's a 5-series tan leather sat-nav automatic. I glance across to the passenger seat. is sitting right there in her jeans and jumper, tugging a strand of hair. I jump out of my skin and almost total the beamer in the central reservation. I regain control of the wheel. What are you doing here? I ask her. She gives me one of those looks. You know. Know what? You promised. Look, Cass, I didn't kill the kid. No, you just sentenced him to death, that's all. Come on, what was I supposed to do? Oh, I don't know, Cassie says, throwing out her arms. The right thing? You don't know the business, Cass. Options don't come in black and white. What's that car? She says, pointing ahead. I turn my eyes to the road, just in time to undercut a red punto, driven slow by an old woman who looks like Yoda. I rejoin the outside lane, glance across at Cass. She's not letting me off the hook. If you're going to have a go at anyone, have a go at your mum. She's already on the hand shandies again. God, you like a couple of kids? Cassie says, shaking her head. This isn't about mum. You made a promise, dad, and now you're breaking that promise. So much for your stupid code. I look ahead at the airport sign, the exit road coming up fast on the left. I glance at myself in the rearview mirror. I look across at Cassie, tapping on a phone, glued to the thing as usual. I indicate left and slide the BMW across three lanes into the slip road. I notice 747 rising into the sky. When I look again at the passenger seat, Cassie's gone. Damn. The imaginings seem so real when they happen. I shake it off and get back to reality. I turn up the radio and sing along. This is the right thing to do. The only thing. No two ways about it. Twenty. Detective Price called up a number on the speakerphone of the Mondeo. Redenko answered. Tell me it's good news. It's good news, Mr. Redenko. I've got the kid. Redenko breathed a sigh of relief on the other end of the call. And breaker. He handed him over, just like you said. Good, I'll deal with that fucker when this is over. You want me to bring the kid to you? No, I'm on my way to court. Meet Frogger at the usual place. And the money? Price asked. Frogger will bring it. Then don't make contact with us again, understand? No, you don't have to worry about that, Price said. Ending the call, the detective drove to a deserted part of town. He steered the grey Mondeo along a hidden back road where prostitutes lurked. A couple were still out, attempting to flag him down. The old abandoned mills rose high to the left, pigeons breaking out of smashed windows across a grey morning sky. It had been a long night, a stressful one, but Detective Price could relax. He'd hand over Danny. The kid would disappear, and so would he once he got that money. He was tired of the police force, And who needed the full pension when Rodenko was handing over half a million in cash? Yes, one more little job and he'd be done with the force, the babysitting of witnesses, the criminal scum, the loss of it. As he pulled off the road onto a stretch of wasteland, Price thought he heard the sound of a speeding engine. He turned his head to the left in time to see the dark front end of a car. It came at him fast ploughing into the front passenger side. The wheel jerked out of Price's hands as the Mondeo came to a sudden stop. He lurched forward in his belt and back against the headrest. The engine was still running, so he shook off the impact and put the car in reverse. Rodenko had screwed him over, Price thought. They were going to snatch the kid by force and keep the half a million. If he could escape the scene with the witness in the boot, he still had a chip in the game. But too late. Before he could back up the Mondeo, the driver door swung open. A huge gnarled fist introduced itself hard and fast to his right cheekbone. As soon as the punch landed, Price's lights went out. 21. Danny Platt had only just found a bearable position when he was thrown sideways across the boot. He hid the rear of the back seats and bounced up into the parcel shelf. He landed on his right arm, pain shooting up into his shoulder. The car had come to a sudden stop. He waited in the dark, listening to the chug of the diesel exhaust. He heard a crunch of metal and a smash of glass. Had Price totaled his car? Danny hoped he'd died of the wheel. His mum had taught him to forgive other people, no matter what. Even the gangs on the estate who had forced him into dealing down in the tunnels. The place where he'd seen Rodenko's man shoot Ken, the local bookie. Hate is like throwing dust into a strong wind, his mum always said you know where the dust is going to end up. He knew his mum was right, yeah right now he hated Price, and he hoped the guy burned alive behind the wheel, even if it meant he had to burn too. It was probably better than whatever lay ahead. Panic rose inside Danny's chest again at the thought of what Rodenko's men were going to do to him. The boot was claustrophobic, there wasn't any air, and the handkerchief stuffed inside his mouth made it feel like he was suffocating. His whole body ached, the ties so tight he felt sure they were cutting deep into his skin. Danny tried to compose himself, to listen. He heard boots on concrete, the driver door opening. A pause. Then the boot lock popped, footsteps approaching the rear of the car. The cop? No, sounded bigger, heavier. One of Rodenko's guys then, coming to get him. Shit, this is it, this is fucking it. The boot of the Mondeo opened, early morning light spilled in. Danny squinted, he saw a large figure stood over him, a gun in his right hand. The man reached in with his left, ripped the neckties away from Danny's wrists and ankles, followed soon after by the tie around his mouth. Danny spat out the wet handkerchief. His brain screamed run, but his arms and legs were too numb to carry out the command. The man reached in again and grabbed him by the front of his hoodie. He hauled him out as if he weighed nothing. He put Danny down on his feet, legs like jelly. Danny looked up at the towering figure. It was Charlie, Breaker, or whatever he was called. What are you doing here? Danny asked. Thought I'd finish you off myself, Breaker said. Just to make sure. Danny swallowed hard and stepped back. Make it quick, yeah? Breaker paused a moment. He burst into laughter. I'm pulling your leg, you soft bastard. He held up the gun. This is Price's backup. Breaker guided Danny around to the front of the car. The black BMW they'd stolen in Chinatown sat sideways across the front of the Mondeo, its right-hand side crumpled, the front end of Price's car even worse. Get in, Breaker said. We don't have long before he wakes up. Danny looked through the windscreen of the Mondeo. Price's head was off to one side, moving slow and groggy. Where are we going? He asked Breaker, walking around the passenger side of the BMW, the feeling returning to all four limbs. We're going to court, Breaker said, as if you still want to testify. Danny looked at Breaker, fear replaced by an anger coursing through every vein. They would threatened him, his sister and his mum. Fuck yeah, he said. 22. The driver door on the BMW is crumpled stiff. I force it open through brute strength. I jump in and pull it as closed as it will go. Before the kid can buckle up and I can put the car in drive, two more black BMWs appear on the scene. They speed along the back road to the mills and bump their way onto the stretch of weedy concrete. Frogger's head and shoulders pop out of a passenger window on the lead car. An oozy submachine gun in hand. Get down, I tell the kid slamming the gear lever in reverse. The first round of automatic fire rattles the grill of the car as I back it up fast. The kid cowers low in his seat, hands over his head. My door swings halfway open as I spin the BMW 180 and stomp on the accelerator pedal. The two cars give chase across the bumpy slice of industrial wasteland. I cut a diagonal path back onto the road, flying off the pavement and hitting the tarmac heavy. As I punch it down Blowjob Alley, Frogger and Co. are still hot on my tail. The good news is, we've got time. It's 8.20 and the trial recommences at 9. The bad news is, is it's rush hour. Even out here in the arse end of nowhere, traffic is stacking up. What time are you supposed to be on the stand? I ask the kid. He looks up at me from his brace position. The what? I don't know, first thing I think. More gunfire rips through the air, cuts into the back of the BMW and punctures the rear windscreen and passenger wing mirror. I steer left and right, weaving through slow-moving morning traffic, up a ramp that leads onto the M60 motorway. I squeeze every drop of juice out of the engine and fly off the slip road onto the main carriageway. I slice between a pair of HGV trucks and into the middle lane. I undertake the traffic on my right before jumping into the fast lane. I lean on the horn and flash my lights at the cars ahead. They're already doing a hundred, but I'm pushing past one thirty. The two chasing cars are making a good fist of keeping up, so I dive back into the middle and slalom left to right, a whisker away from writing the damn thing off, a stiff roaring wind coming in through the gap in the crumpled door. A police chopper appears overhead in the distance, blue flashing lights head down the next slip road. Price must have woken up and called it in. The traffic snarling up as we head towards the city. I'm forced to brake hard down to sixty. I lurch forward in my seat, no belt to hold me in place. The chasing cars soon catch up, one on the left ramming into the passenger side, the other approaching fast on the right. Up ahead, we're bearing down on a creeping wall of cars. I see Frogger leaning out with that Uzi, gurning at me with those bulbous, weirdly spaced eyes, ready to fill me and the kid with holes. Yeah, that's it Frogger, closer, a little closer, boom, as they pull up alongside I emergency brake, I throw my shoulder into my door, it flies open at the right time and snaps clean off the hinges as it slams into Frogger's BMW, Frogger drops the Uzi as he ducks out of the way, I keep braking and let the chasing cars fly by, I turn a hard left minus a door, we cut across a honking truck onto the hard shoulder. I give it the full beans, flying down the inside of three jam lanes of traffic. The cop car that joined the party earlier is right on my arse, with Rodenko's goons not far behind. But I'm doing fine, thinking we might make it. That is until I see a broken-down box truck ahead of us, the driver on the grass verge, a metal barrier on the inside of the truck, with a queue of cars lined up on the outside. Is that gap big enough? You've got a brake, man! The kid says. You've got a brick." The hell I do. 23. I go for it, veering through the tightest of spaces between the truck and traffic. I snap off a line of wing mirrors including both of my own. I bump and scrape a fair few cars but we make it out. The police patrol car tries the same only to scrape to a stop as it gets wedged in the narrow gap. I'm thinking that'll block the others behind but in my rear view I see him fly around the inside of the truck. The bullets in the rear of the BMW confirm it. Now it's a straight race to the courthouse. We break off the motorway and onto the start of the ring road back into the city. I pull left up a slip road, overshooting a line of traffic, queuing to make a left of the large roundabout ahead. I tear the right lane and cut across the nose of a silver Honda. I swerve off the first exit on the left, causing a pileup. For once, there's a stretch of clear road ahead. It soon runs out. A long line of bright orange cones in the left-hand lane forces traffic down to a funeral pace. Fuck that. I plow straight into the cones. They bounce up and over the windscreen, thudding off my roof. They at a tat tat into the windscreen of the BMW behind. A couple get caught under the front bumper of the car. The driver panics and slams on. Frogger's car shunts into the back of it and it swerves off onto the pavement, smack bang into a lamppost. In my rearview mirror I see the lamppost snap in two and smash into the roof of the BMW. One down, one to go. And only a short stretch of Deansgate Road left now as we enter into the thick of town. Buildings rise high. Suited and booted workers flood a pedestrian crossing. Some of them might be lawyers, I think. I don't mind mowing them down one bit but I promised Cassie so I thumb the horn and flash my lights full beam, scaring them out of the way. Most of them move in time, a few others I swerve around. Now I see it's Tony behind the wheel of Frogger's car. Tony's a damn good driver. He weaves through the gap I just made. The court is coming up soon on the left. It sits behind a place called Spinningfields, a big swanky gathering of glass buildings full of offices, bars and snooty restaurants. An Armani store takes pride of place out front, with an open square where they sometimes set up markets. I keep banging the horn and veer off the road onto the stretch of perfect paving in front of the Armani store. I cut down the left of it, people scramble out the way. The kid shouts and swears as we come up to a large set of stone steps leading down to a lower level. No, 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 don't do it, man, he says. Show up and hold on, I say, breaking hard. As the kid braces, I lock my arms stiff against the wheel. I am fucking Jason Bourne. We fly off the top step and bounce down the rest of the staircase. It doesn't go well. The impact mashes the front end of the car to pieces. I jar half the bones in my back. Yeah, we make it to the bottom, but in one written-off piece that won't steer straight. The engine dies too and we cruise left. Straight through the plate glass window of a handbag store. Shattered glass rains down over the bonnet. We lurch to a stop, parked halfway in the store. I eject the belt off the kid and drag him out of his seat through the empty driver doorframe. Our feet crunch over the glass. A young shop assistant with a ginger ponytail stands open mouthed. A shrug at her and shuffle low towards the rear of the car. Behind us, a corridor of glass buildings leads to an open courtyard. Beyond that courtyard sit the courthouses, the old par and the new par. The new building rises highest, glass shipping container-shaped pods stacked on top of one another. The older and more pompous Crown Court sits in front, a long, wide stone building with a set of huge wooden doors and high-rising windows all the way along it. I know it well, the inside and the outside. It's tempting to make a run for the core right now, Sirens are wailing again and the media are already out on the stone steps, waiting for Odenko, no doubt, but with cameras now angling our way. I motion to the kid to stay down and stay put. I edge out around the boot of the BMW. Frogger's car didn't make it either. It lies on its roof at the bottom of the stairway, wheels slow spinning. I see Tony in the front, bloodied head in the steering wheel. The airbag deflated, the windscreen smashed the bonnet crumpled and smoking. But there's no sign of Frogger, just an open passenger door. I took Price's spare piece behind my back in the waistline of my suit trousers, one hand on the butt, the other hauling the kid up. Move your skinny ass! I say running him through an alley of stores and across the courtyard. I keep my head on a swivel all the time, the kid held close. I keep expecting gunfire from behind, but it looks like Frogger's done a runner. And here's Mr. Odenko on the steps of the court with his legal team. Face the colour of ash. The doors to the court are open. A handful of police are filtering out. To my right, I see two cop cars pulling to a sudden stop, uniformed pigs piling out. I run the kid up to the steps. Danny, a podgy redhead in a suit calls out. She stands with a bald man in glasses, both middle-aged, briefcases in hands. You know them, I ask the kid. The prosecutors, he says. Good, I say. I push him towards them as the prosecution team call for security. The police won't do anything here, no matter how crooked. Rodenko knows it. He knows he's done. I can see it in his face. But the kid hesitates a moment. He turns towards me. I can tell them you help me, he says. Come in with us. In there, I say. No thanks. I back away, hand on my weapon, eyes on the cops. Get him inside, I shout to the lawyers. They pull him away and up the steps. Thanks, he says as he's led up the stairs. Make it count, I say. The kid nods. I back up along the left of the courthouses. Cops come running, shouting for me to stop. I pull out the gun and let off a couple of rounds in the air. The cops scramble for cover. I know their moves. They'll wait for the armed response. It should give me enough time to make it out. So I leg it down the side of the courthouse. But as I break into a side street around the rear of the building, I almost take a bullet, a pistol shot twice. I reverse up against a wall and peep around the corner. I see Frogger. I jump out and return fire. He moves fast and low behind a parked car a red Astra with a fresh bullet hole in it. Frogger dashes around the back of the building. My instinct is to run, to clear the scene and put some distance between myself and the cops. But something stops me. I'm in this mess because of him. I can't let the dickhead get away. So I go against all my better instincts. All common sense. I go after Frogger. 24 I give chase through a maze of glass buildings, empty paved corridors with no sign of Frogger, only the echoes of his footsteps. I follow the sound to a blind corner, the rear of the courthouse, the hum of an air conditioning system coming out of the vents. I wait and listen, but the beat of a police chopper drowns out everything else. I move slow round the next corner, just another empty passageway, the tinted green glass of the new law courts rising up high in front of me. I wait, both hands on the gun, finger on the trigger, the chopper beating louder and louder as it searches me out. I've got nothing. Yet yeah, the sun comes up from behind the clouds, a thick wave of light travels up the passageway and casts everything in a bright yellow glow. The sun is warm and lights up the glass in front of me. I see my reflection crystal clear, and another behind me, a tall lean figure with a white bandaged hand, Coming out of hiding, raising his weapon. I whirl around and fire twice. Frogger gets a shot off but is lost to the sky. He hits the deck. The gun spills from his hand. Blood seeps through his dark grey hoodie. As I stand over Frogger he coughs up a mouthful of thick blood. I know you like Neil Diamond, he says. His eyes roll white as he takes his last breath. I linger a moment in the warm sunshine. I've never been the Bible-bashing kind, but it almost feels like God is talking to me, helping me out, telling me I did good. He speaks to me in a Manchester accent, screams at me to drop the weapon to get down on the floor. I turn to my right, and faced with four semi-automatic rifle barrels, high-powered kit pointed square at me. No, it's definitely not God. 25. Four plainclothes cops stand in a line in dark blue Kevlar vests. They're yelling at me again to put down my gun. Yeah, yeah, I say, setting it down slow. These armed response guys are so bloody twitchy. They keep yelling, but I know the drill. On the floor, hands on head, blah, blah, blah. Looks like I'll be joining Rodenko in the slammer which means I'll have to kill him before he kills me. The cops have me cuffed and on my feet in no time. They march me round the front of the courthouse, the place is emptied out, cordoned off with all the main players inside, the doors locked shut and an armed guard outside. They shove me on past the courthouse to where a police van waits on the street with its doors open. About a dozen cops stand around looking smug as if they didn't shit their pants five minutes earlier. So off, lads, I say to them. I'll one of them, just for the fun of it. He shits his pants all over again. Just as I'm about to step up into the van, a dark Range Rover pulls up with a blue and red flashing light on the inside of the dash, an unmarked pigmobile with the rear windows blacked out. A pair of suited detectives get out, a big ginger bloke and a leggy slender woman with black hair. They have their badges at the ready, pulling rank. The other cops aren't too happy. What's all this? One of them asks. The senior officer by the looks of his silvering hair and swagger. NCA, the woman says. Also known as the National Crime Agency. The people charged with bringing down organized crime in the UK. This is our arrest, says the senior officer. Was, the woman says, turning her nose up at him. A female copper with short black hair sighs in frustration. Where are you taking him? It's above your station, the woman says as a partner takes me by the arm. This is a fucking joke, says a squat copper with a face I'd like to punch. I cock my head to one side. Do I hear stolen thunder? I laugh as I'm led away. The male detective opens the back door of the Range Rover. He pushes me up inside. The Range Rover pulls away from the curb, police vehicles and traffic making way. The female detective sits behind the wheel. In actual fact, it's Laura. A ginger sidekick is one of Murphy's new goons. Speaking of the silver-haired devil, he sits to my right on the back seat. A big grin on his face. The cat who got the double cream. Sorry we're a bit late, he says, undoing my cuffs with a small key. I was sure notice, I say, shaking my hands free of the cuffs. I would have called earlier, but it was a last minute thing. I take it you got the young man to the courthouse on time? He's in there now, Rodenko too. I would have paid a lot of money to see his face, Murphy says. The Range Rover cruises through the city streets, rush hour traffic thinning so where to? Laura asks. Your place, I ask. It bounces right off her. No, I'm never getting anywhere there. Can't go home, I say. Don't suppose you could sew me out with a new passport and a change of clothes, could you? Shouldn't be a problem, Laura says. You leaving for good? Why, are you gonna miss me? Still nothing. That woman is dead inside. You know my offer's still on the table. Murphy says. Can't hang around here any longer, I say. I'm sure all that can be made to go away, he says as we pass by the tall glass monolith that is the Hilton Hotel. You know me, Mr. Murphy, I'm like Switzerland. As I say it, Murphy choruses with me, like he's tired of hearing it. Well, whatever your philosophical leanings, he says, you're not neutral anymore. He holds my eye. I guess he's got a point. Working for Murphy would be the common sense option. Protection from the cops and Redenko's mob. A change of pace and plenty of cash in my pocket. But, I promise Cassie. Well, Charlie, Murphy says, raising a silvery eyebrow. What do you say? 26. It's a typical Manchester afternoon. A walk with a rucksack over one shoulder. Collar turned up to the wind, a few hundred quid in one pocket, a fake passport in the other. I see a bus approaching behind me, lime green, one of those small electric ones with its wipers on. A fine drizzle hangs in the air. The bus shushes past in the wet, straight past the bus stop. An old man just misses it. He sighs and takes a seat inside the shelter, opening the local paper. On the front page, there's a headline next to an image of Rodenko. Surprise witness condemns mafia boss to life behind bars. The kid did good. Christ knows where they moved him. I hope it's somewhere better than the estates. I heard on the radio the detective Price was on the run from the cops. They'll soon catch him. You know how I know. Because he thinks he's smarter than he is. I smile to myself at the thought of him in the slammer with Rodenko around a corner into an alley. Something about helping that kid. I don't know. It felt good. In a way, no amount of booze, money, women, car nicking or school bashing ever has. It's like after forty odd years, I suddenly woke up. I want to go straight. And not just because I promised. You feel lighter when you do good, you know? I walk halfway down the street and stop at the side of a blue Mazda 6. I look around me. The coast is clear. Yep. Today feels like the start of a new journey. Wherever I'm headed, I'm going to attempt to make a positive difference. Do something meaningful with my life. Be a good citizen. A good father. A good human being. Right after I steal this car.